Bureaucracies are everywhere, and the more our population grows and our borders change, leak, and dissolve, the harder it is for bureaucracies to manage. They're built upon regulations, laws, and governing bodies to do their job, and yet the scope of our nations in terms of geography and population, combined with the breadth of our nation in terms of diversity in industry, backgrounds, beliefs, and culture, necessitates flexibility yet our current bureaucracies are rigid and becoming even more so. Today's guest is working to reimagine law, power, and the possibility of code by building the infrastructure for the Internet's next evolution, the Internet of Agreements. Vinay Gupta helped coordinate Ethereum's 2015 release, was the strategic architect of consensus and designer of Dubai's national blockchain strategy. In addition to being a blockchain fellow for Digital Catapult, a UK government-funded initiative to increase the amount of innovation in the country, he leads two huge projects. The first is Hexayear Capital, a fund designed to invest in the Internet of Agreements, which is defined as the world enabled by smart contracts. It hopes to invest in companies that tackle real-world problems like logistics and global trade. The second company is Materium, which is building an Internet of Agreements infrastructure project for legally enforceable smart contracts, enabling the sale and lease of physical property and other transfers of rights in digital assets. Gupta's path to here has been unconventional, to say the least. An environmentalist, an ex-military cryptographer, a legal expert, a futurist, leader, and very much more. Vinay Gupta is a thought leader focused on solving social ills, many of which require a rethinking of how we develop and implement laws. Thank you, Vinay, for taking the time to sit down with me today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, good to be here. So um, I'm curious, why are you so passionate about the law? Um, well, so I'm passionate about power. Right? At the end of the day, the world is falling to pieces because the good people have no power and the evil people have all power. And it turns out the main mechanism by which you know, power is exercised in society is law. Right? If you want to stop somebody dumping toxins into a lake, right, you're going to need to go to the lawyers, and the lawyers are going to need to figure it out for you. Right. So what I saw with the blockchain was this enormous explosion of technological possibility completely hamstrung by our inability to figure out how to navigate the legal system. Um, all of these ICOs that are running around, they're taking so much money out of the system. There's such an enormous amount of potential for innovation. And I have a feeling that three quarters of those people are going to wind up in court for the next five years fighting the SEC. Yeah. I think it's going to be a nightmare. And we've already got a lot of examples of this happening. Well, the SEC has not waded in much yet, right? The actual right, prosecutions right. are being pretty slow to start. But, you know, the rumor is they're basically hiring an entire department just to do ICO prosecutions. Because how could you not? 80% of that stuff yeah. is fraud. Yeah. Well, what are they going to do? Let people rip people off and get away with it? This is not their business. Right. So I got very interested because if you want to deploy technical innovation and you want it not to be an enormous disaster, turns out you're going to need law. Because law is how you control power. And so what are some of the fundamental structural legal barriers that you think need to be explored or solved to unleash this potential that exists? Well, so you've got two problems. The first is breaking existing law, and the second is voids where we don't have any law. 
Uh, right, right. So breaking existing law, this is basically the uh, ICO problem, where you're basically issuing a bunch of stuff which is broadly speaking uh, clearly a security in most cases, in as much as you're raising funds from the public to go and finance engineering work. That's called a security. Right? Mm -hmm. So problem number one, you're <coughs> doing stuff where the law already exists and the law says no. Problem number two is far more interesting. Problem number two is where you want to do something, but it turns out that there is no law that figures out whether or not that's legal or illegal. So I met some guys who were talking to the government of Dubai mm -hmm. about an autonomous drone fleet that would do passenger taxi services rooftop to rooftop in Dubai, and they're trying to figure out how to manage the airspace. Reasonable question. Yeah. Right? But everything to do with aviation is hard bound by law because it has to be because otherwise people die in droves. So what do you do? How are you going to approach that problem? Well, turns out the smart way of approaching it is you need to make new law fast enough that you can cover the ground, that you can get the outcomes you want. Yeah. And so how do we help the legal system keep pace with innovation? Uh, you can't. It's impossible. Right? Because the legal system backs up directly against the governments, and the governments have four-year electoral cycles. And as a result, there's at least four years of lag mm -hmm. before you can get new people into parliament to have new ideas. Right. right. And that's your best case. In actual practice, the lag is like 25 years. Um, but it's okay, because most of what you want to do is either regulation, where a bureaucrat changes their mind, mm -hmm. or it's contract law. And contract law, you know, if, if you and I decide that we're going to make you know, a contract for a service and you agree that you're going to basically come around to my house and wash my windows dressed as a clown, you know, that's a contract. You right. can do anything you like in contract right. law, right? I want a cheesecake, but I want the bottom layer of it to be bacon and I want you to deliver a thousand of them to this factory on Thursday. Fine, it's a contract, right? You can do anything you like under contract law mm -hmm. because contracts exist in the domain of human freedom constrained only by two things, right? The courts that say that's not legal, you can't make a contract for an illegal thing, that's not a contract. Uh, you know, there's a lawyer joke about contract killing isn't a contract because killing people is illegal. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I think they're bringing contracts into distribute. It's kind of a running joke, right? So, you know, contracts are f only for legal things. And uh, you have to be, this is, this is hard to describe, um, the court has to understand the intent of the contract well enough to enforce it. So imagine some situation where you've got a role-playing game, right? Two kids are playing D&D, &D, mm -hmm. and they sign a legal contract for $5 that one of them will have their character do something in-game in a particular way. Okay. Right? Now, that's a legal contract, right? Deal's a deal. Right. They wrote it down. They signed it. There was a clear intent. The problem is that a judge probably doesn't understand Dungeons & Dragons well enough to rule on whether the contract was broken or not. Now what do you do? Yeah. Right? Expert witnesses on both sides who will come and suggest that their party was did or did not perform the thing that was contracted. And now you've got a judge trying to pick between expert witnesses, and what happens is the cost of the ruling goes way up and the quality of the ruling goes way down. And as a result, even if you've got a contract, the contract becomes less and less and less enforceable. Mm -hmm. So on a, God, was it Monday night, David gave his speech about the eight drivers of change in mm. the 21st century. And one of them was megacities, so explosion mm -hmm. and growth of population. And last night you talked a bit about the legal framework and the scale of mm -hmm. these jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, so basically, my contention is that we're basically continuing to look for more effective ways of making democracy go faster. 
but we're locked into a model where the variable that we're trying to control is speed rather than size. In actual fact, nearly all of the power in the world is concentrated at the level of the nation state or the level of the nuclear superpower. But we don't have any real power representations above the level of the nation state at the global level. There's only the UN, and the UN is weak sauce indeed. Mm -hmm. Or uh, below the national level, there's very little power embodied in things like the offices of mayors or labor unions or any other kind of subnational power unit. Right. So we've basically got two frequencies, two scales of power where everything is concentrated, and the levels above that and below that are very, very, very weak. Um, there's no reason that across you the board in democracies in the UK and EU and America. Right? India, I mean, yeah. okay, China mayors have some real power, but that's because mayors have like 45 million people in their political unit. They're basically right. countries. Right. Uh, and in fact, the long struggle of China for the last 4,000 years has been to stop Chinese cities becoming countries. They're constantly fighting to make sure that it's one China rather than 16 Chinas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they talk about the you know, three kings period and the five kings period, the, you know, N, N kings period. Right, right. Um, because keeping China together as a single unit is super hard because it's so enormous and yeah. it's so diverse. Right. Um, you know, the, the fact that you could casually refer to China with a single handle, that's not something that happened by accident. That's millennia of effort. Mm -hmm. um, so... In any case, right across the board, including China, um, there is a very strong tendency for power to be concentrated very strongly at the national level. And as a result, you can't get things done because local problems can't get enough national attention to get resolution. Right. So there's lots of room for bringing power down to the local levels. There's lots of room for building power at the global level. And we're all beset by problems which are either too small or too large for national government to handle. So there's a lot of room for twisting around the way that we think about power to handle scale better. And how does a system go about accounting for um, the largest and the smallest unit of human geography? I think it has to be a whole bunch of different systems. I don't think a single system can do it. I think you're going to need lots and lots and lots and lots of different systems that handle these things at different levels. Okay. And do you think in blockchain we find some solutions that can meet some of these needs and be interoperable? Um, so you're going to use whatever the best technology is of the day to solve your problems. Mm -hmm. Right now the best technology of the day is blockchain, so we're going to throw blockchain at a whole bunch of these problems. Not necessarily because blockchain is the right tool for the job, because it's the new tool for the job. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know what it's good for or not good for. It will stick in some place and it will miss in others. Okay. So I've been to a few of your talks this last week, and um, one thing that always surprises me about you, given all of the exciting projects that you're a part of, is you seem to have a pessimistic worldview for humanity going forward. Um, the only people that think we aren't fucked are rich white people. Mm -hmm. Everybody else knows we're fucked. But acro and across the board, we're seeing progress in most human domains, across diversities, across geographies. Well, so people are very big on the story that we're making progress and everything is getting better, right? Um, and that's true as long as you pretend that climate change isn't happening, as long as you pretend that we're not running out of ecosystem, as long mm -hmm. as you pretend that we're not running out of natural resources on every front, right? Once you begin to put the limits to growth into the picture, you get a different story. So the way that human history works is this. 
99% of the time we're making linear progress and we're moving up and everything's getting better and better and better and 1% of the time you get these massive precipitous drops that undo 40 years of progress overnight and then you go back to the slow rise. Mm -hmm. So when you stop and look back, the actual trajectory is down but for 99% of the time the motion is upwards. So you get a paradox. It constantly seems like things are getting better, but somehow the world keeps getting worse. And this is because we don't put an appropriate amount of weight on the sudden breakage events where suddenly things slip down and fall off the cliff, and then you've got to pick up the pieces. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know whether you're old enough to have a really clear recollection of what life was like before 9-11. Yeah, right. yeah, I'm 31. Okay, so we had world peace for 10 years. The Cold War was over, the Russians were gone, the Americans were in a position where they were likely to be the only superpower in the world for the rest of history. There were isolated civil right. wars, though. Oh, there was all kinds of old yeah. ends of stuff going yes. on, right? But to all intents and purposes, we had world peace mm -hmm. for 10 years, right? There were odds and ends of rinky-dink little wars that were winding down. Pax Americana was the thing that was being discussed. The Americans replacing the Roman Empire, ensuring peace and stability for the globe. The whole thing was getting nicely ratcheted down in a direction which was going to be capitalism, peace and prosperity for everybody, pretty much whether they liked it or not, right? Right, right. And we went from there to America bankrupt, opiate-ridden, with worse demographics than the Soviet Union in the middle of its collapse in 15 years through mismanagement and bad governance, right? It's a slaughter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, okay, things are getting better, right? right up until you wind up with the you know bankrupt and desperate America engaged in let's say a land war not a, you know and not a small war against a bunch of folks that are basically um, militias which right. is what you saw in Iraq and Afghanistan or other but proxies a, a real war mm. right right and we are rapidly headed in that direction because what do bankrupt superpowers do lash out right or they wind up with civil wars so on one hand you know, human progress, human progress, human <clears throat> progress. On the other hand, we went from world peace to fascism in 15 years, and people still think life is getting better, right? American life expectancy is going down. Right. Well, our health care costs go up. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, why is that happening, right? That's not happening because the world is getting better. You go to Africa, yeah, yeah, life is getting better in Africa. Life is improving in Africa. Things are good in Africa. All the numbers are going up and to the right. Apart from the fact that the Chinese have bought huge amounts of the agricultural land, mm -hmm. they're uh, in a position of running huge amounts of the critical infrastructure, they're heavily involved in the entire running of Africa as a continent, and as soon as we hit a global food price spike, they'll export all of the food from Africa, and exactly the same way the English exported all of the food from China, and you'll wind up with a famine in Africa that could kill, I don't know, 200 million people? Now, I don't know for a fact that will happen, right? right. right? But what we're doing is, although the numbers are going up and everything is curving up and to the right, what's also piling up at the same time is tons and tons and tons of dry tinder. Yeah. And as yeah. soon as history sets light to that, decades of progress are unwound in a single week, and then everybody goes back to the myth of progress. In actual fact, we're running out of resources, we're getting increasingly prone to kill each other, we're focusing on all of the wrong things for all of the wrong reasons, and the whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket. And in your perspective, is there anything that can be done to put the brakes on this trajectory? Um, I think that it is more or less inevitable that you're going to see a global famine. Um, in the next 5, 10, 20, what are we talking? The nature of climate change is you don't know when it's going to come. 
Um, but if you look at, for example, the Syrian refugee crisis and the political instability in Egypt, um, all of that stuff is driven by drought. Mm-hmm. We've got an enormous drought in Scandinavia right now. Scandinavia, and in India. Right? Yeah. So the global warming guys are just like, hey, what you're going to get is enormous amounts of drought and then we're going to get food crises. And they've been saying that for three decades. Mm-hmm. Well, what, look out the window, what I see is drought and food crisis. Well, mm, you know, is that what that looks like? It's hard to say, right? I'm not mm-hmm. a climatologist. Even if I was, I'd be guessing. right? Yeah. But it sure does look like a lot of the things that they predicted would happen as global warming began to bite are happening. Mm-hmm. So the next thing you would expect if you wind up with a lot of drought is you're going to wind up with food supply problems. And it will be food distribution, right? Poor yeah, right? yeah. Food we will don't become... have the infrastructure for that. Well, no, we've got the infrastructure. It's just we'll let the poor die. That's mm-hmm. what we're like. That's yeah. what we do, right? Right, with limited resources, yeah. No, no, yeah. we've got plenty of resources. We've got enough money to feed everybody. We've got enough resources to feed everybody. We produce mm-hmm. twice the amount of food that we need to feed the entire world. But an average American has 30 times the environmental consumption of an average, of an average Bangladeshi. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Americans are consuming 10 times the sustainable harvest of the planet. If everybody lived like the Americans, we'd need 10 Earths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard the stat right. before, yeah. So that means that America alone has an effective population of something like 3.6 billion people. Right? Yeah, it's an interesting way to uh, read into the population data. And the It's super simple, yeah. right? So right. think of it in per capita, uh, think yeah. of it in dollar terms, right? So if you take the total size of the global economy and you divide it by the fact that we're at, say, three planets or four planets worth of consumption, mm-hmm. right? Spending causes environmental damage, right? Of you course, spend money yeah. on things. So That's how much can you spend every year before you begin to hit environmental damage? It's about $10,000. Per individual. Per individual. Okay. Some would say as well as five. So if you want to understand what sustainability looks like, it means living with the same resource consumption as a person who's living on 5000 or $10,000 a year. Mm-hmm. That's what sustainability looks like on the current technology platform. Anybody who doesn't yeah. tell you this is lying to you. Now, you tell me how we're going to get to sustainability. So where do you see uh, some impactful social innovation in the environmental sector happening. Maybe okay. it's not to scale, but well, it's promising. Okay, if, if it's not going to scale, it's not promising, it's a distraction. Kill all of it. Because if we can't get sober and oriented about what mm-hmm. our problems are, we're not going to solve them. And so what is an area that you're hopeful that might be able to okay. address? First, this? abandon hope, right? Until you are completely overwhelmed by the utter fuckness of the situation, you're not going to be able to get leverage or anything that looks like a solution. So what motivates you to keep working, keep being involved in these projects, be a thought leader in so many spaces? Well, I mean, the bottom line is that if we don't do something, we're fucked. Can we do something? Sure, we can do something, right? The Mm -hmm. most likely thing that you're going to see is an enormous global wake-up call. Probably a couple of hundred million people will starve to death. Well, that still leaves well over 7 billion that we could do something about. Right. 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 But let's be clear about what's happening, right? We're setting up the conditions for a genocide. So what should people that uh, are concerned about this, and I know a majority, maybe not a majority yet, but a lot are around the globe, um, what should people be focusing on? They should be focusing on not bullshitting themselves or each other. 
sustainability means don't spend more than $10,000 a year in consumption. If you can't live inside of those limits, you can't live sustainability, uh, sustainably, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you know, if you're vegan, that helps. Yes, if you're vegan, that helps. Sure, that helps, right? Oh, if yeah. you don't use fossil fuel, sure, that helps. Yeah, that absolutely helps, right? But all of your medical care systems, the society that educated you, the food miles embodied in your food and all the rest of that kind of stuff, there is still a gigantic amount of consumption that goes into supporting even the greenest Westerners, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. Right, you're part of a machine, and even if you happen to be in the part of the machine that is least consuming, you're still part of the machine. Right, right. And the lock-in on this, right, if, we, if we're going to see a global famine, I guarantee you that's not going to stop Americans eating steak, right? We are letting the poor starve at the rate of something like one to three million people dying of starvation a year now, right? If that number goes from one million to 10 million or 20 million or 30 million or 50 million, if we didn't care about the one million that are starving now enough to right. do something about it, why are yeah. we going to care when it's 50 million? It's just 50 times harder to fix, right? The machine is already running at a genocidal configuration. It's just getting more genocidal. And by the way, I guarantee you that practically none of the people that are starving to death right now are white. They're people whose countries yeah. were invaded, right? All of the wealth was stolen. Their stable societies were destroyed. And then when there was nothing left to take, the white folks left, Right? There's a direct line between skin color and life expectancy. The lighter you are, the longer you're going to live. That's true in America, and it's true globally. These are the facts of the situation, right? And you have to cut right the way through the bullshit until you hit the hard, clanging, empty noise as you hit the bottom of the barrel before there's any legitimate way to discuss hope. This is what people will not do, but this is where the hope is to be found. Right? Okay. It's absolutely crushing. The desolation is awesome, right? It's a horrific vista, but this is how the rest of the world sees it. If you're some poor kid from rural Mexico in a drought-afflicted state that's overrun by narcos, you know exactly how the world works. That's why you're willing to risk your life to crawl through a desert on your belly trying to avoid homeland security to get into the US. Because even as a third-class citizen, you're going to do better than you did at home. Why do you think they're coming? Of course, of course. Right? So, in this context, then, what does hope look like? Right? Firstly, you could talk about redistribution of wealth. Right? What does it take to sacrifice the welfare and the well-being of the richest on behalf of the poorest? We could totally do that. Right? It's within our reach, but it turns out that what we're really doing is we're building more and more machinery to concentrate wealth. Right. Disastrous. Right. Right? even inside of the West, right? We've all seen Scandinavia, right? Norway doesn't really count because it's basically the Saudi Arabia of Scandinavia, right? It's the shelfare state. Sweden doesn't really have much oil. They built a society on an egalitarian model with a very, very, very uh, low income disparity between the richest and poorest. It's 10 to 1, 20 to 1, something like that. In America, it's like 600 to 1. So those kind of models, right? We know that they work. We know that they can be adopted. We continue to reject them. Right? And I'm not saying that if the entire world ran on Swedish socialism, it would be a better model. I think there are terrible prices paid in that society in terms of things like creativity. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, we know it's there. Nobody will seriously discuss it. Right? Then you look at disparity in countries like Africa. Right? Almost the entirety of Africa was colonized by one power or another, who basically ran these places into the ground and then quit when it was no longer profitable to occupy them. 
you want to talk seriously about beginning to put some of the wealth back as reparations. Mm-hmm. Right? All of these folks in America that are the descendants from, from slaves, they've got you know, two centuries of back wages that they ought to be able to collect. Right? All the wealth that their mm-hmm. ancestors should have accumulated and passed to them was taken by white people. So why are we not talking seriously about reparations? So this category of fixes are the political fixes. Right, right. right. And the political fixes aren't happening because white people are willing to kill to stay rich. And until you get absolute clarity about that principle, there is no possibility of change. Do you think there's hope in the fact that we're finding more women, more people of color in our political body? Um, Well, you're certainly going to do better than without them. Yeah. But if you think of, you know, Indira Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher, Golda Meir, Benazir Bhutto, uh, and a couple of others. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the lady that runs Burma. Uh, turns out that just because you've got female prime ministers yeah. doesn't mean you have nice people in charge. Yeah. Right? I mean, right. You know, yeah. these folks have tended to be neoliberal warmongers from hell. Yes. Uh, so I don't think gender balance alone is going to fix it. I completely agree. Right? Yeah. Same thing with... The coppering the male model of leadership there. No, no, continuing I th- on now? no, I think it's just that women are exactly as evil as men are. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, they evolved in the same conditions. Mm-hmm. Right? They've got the same genetics. Why would we expect them to be magical, sparkly creatures rather than being murderous bastards in exactly the same way that men are when you push them? Right? We're built to survive, and that's mm-hmm. true for both genders. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, the yeah. idea that just because you put women in charge, you're not going to get enormous marching armies around the globe going to take resources. Have you ever seen women defending their kids? Right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's just mythology, right? Okay. Yeah, you can have women involved in government, it's still going to look like government. Mm-hmm. And that's not because it's a male dominated institution, it's because women are just as bad as men. And that's fundamentally what feminism tells you, right? Men and women are the same. The same. Right? right. Well, they're either right. the same or they're not the same. Yeah. Right. If they're not the same, we're having a completely different argument. And we have to throw away fifty years of feminism. If mm. they are the same, putting them in government will not give you better government. Right. It will give you more diverse government. But you know, you can either have gender gender essentialism and say that the women automatically bring some different quality to power, mm-hmm. or you can have equality and say that men and women are going to do the same job when you put them in the same role. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. Right. So let's jump back to the equity of representation with the more um, the minorities joining the uh, brown ranks. people. Brown people. Yes. Brown people. What yes. happens when you give brown and black people a role in government? Well, they're going to fight for their interests in the same yeah. way that white people are fighting for their interests, right? And in America, you've got what? You can. I, we can think of times that they've been corrupted by the same corporate interests that have corrupted... No, no, it's all just self-interest. Yeah. Right? I mean, the reason white people are willing to kill to stay rich is because they can. They can get away with it. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you think if, let's say, uh, the Arab world had gotten hold of nuclear weapons first, you wouldn't have a problem? (laughs) Or the South Americans? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Aztecs run enormous human sacrifice cultures. The Mayan versus Aztec wars were unbelievably brutal, somebody told me. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, it's not that they are nice people, Right? It's not that the other races are any nicer than the whites are. Yeah. It's that the whites figured out mechanized warfare first, then did exactly what anybody else would have done given, the, given the tools. Right? <clears throat> this is human yeah. nature that we're dealing with. Right? Um, and, and, you know, once you understand that, most of the dialogue about gender and race can be safely thrown out. Right? One team won, and they won because they got to this knife first, and they used it. The idea that if somebody else had gotten to the knife first, you would have gotten a fairer world, 
this is largely mythology. Yeah. But in the situation that we're in, the big stick is largely controlled by white, and they're using it in exactly the same way that any monkey would behave if they had the big stick. Mm -hmm. Right? If you give an AK-47 to a chimp, you're going to wind up with a chimp who's in charge. And that AK-47 is nuclear bombs. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the point I want to make here right, is when you collapse all of this in, we have a political deadlock which is not going to change because nobody is going to vote for their children to be poor. Hmm. What does that leave us? Hmm. It leaves us technological change. Right? Is it possible for us to build technology to get us into a stable configuration, or better still, an expansion configuration, before we turn to genocide? All right, so, so in closing, what is your call to action? Well, the call to action is you're going to have to do the technology, right? Okay. We are already post-scarcity for education. We've got the technology to educate everybody at practically zero cost. Can you imagine how Thomas Jefferson's view of the world would have changed if somebody had invented the internet? Oh, you mean we can educate everybody as far as their brains and their hearts will carry them? And we can do it for no money? Jefferson would have called that utopia realized. No mm -hmm. doubt about it, the sheer cost of printing books was one of the biggest obstacles to universal education. Right? When book printing becomes free, when video production becomes free, universal education is suddenly a possibility. So this is immediately a utopian potential. Uh, Post-scarcity for energy, right? Solar mm -hmm. panels are 20% of the cost year-on-year uh, -year, uh, drop. Yeah. Right? So they're going to be practically free in 10 or 20 years. You're going to see unbelievable global transformation. We're going to stop burning coal because it's just too expensive. Yeah. Why do we even bother? Right? Yeah. Unbelievable technological transformation. None of this requires human beings to become nice. Market forces is shipping all of that. Right? And at least the computers are hugely tied up in global politics through things like the NSA's control of Facebook and Google. Mm -hmm. So it's not that these things are happening in spite of politics. The politics continues to march on as they go. The technologies are still here. Right? Yeah. Uh, if we can figure hmm. out how to do meat production without any animals involved, this whole clean meat movement... We're getting close. We're getting close. So at that point, you begin to pull all the bloody cows back out of nature. Right now, something like 95% of the weight of animals with spines is cows and humans. <laughs> right? That's a strange piece of data. Okay, no, right? it makes sense, yeah. And you, know, if you go back yeah. 20,000 years, humans would have been, what, a tenth of a percent of the vertebrate biomass? Yeah. We've replaced practically all of the other animals with cows. The world is just mm. an a single enormous mooing mess, right? And they're yeah. horrendously bad for climate change. Right. So you Not pull the cows back out of, the, out of nature, nature regenerates because it's just too expensive to fight the jungle. Mm -hmm. If you're not cutting the jungle down to put cows on it, there's basically no point in cutting the jungle down and that stuff will regrow. So we're in a position where we have a strong risk of utopia breaking out because the technologists continue to ship the utopia, but the politicians continue to ship war. This shouldn't surprise us, yeah. right? A country exists because a bunch of chimpanzees with sticks maintained a boundary where other chimpanzees weren't allowed to be. Why would you expect that institution to be able to solve the world's problems? The problem-solving machinery was always a bunch of guys down at a quarry, you know, whacking right. rocks against each other until right. we got stone tools. Yeah. Right? The problem-solving machine and the territorial defense machine have always been different machines, why do we expect the territorial defense machine to be able to solve the world's problems? That's not what it's for. Yeah. It's never been for that. Anybody who thinks it was is clearly mistaken. Right? It's the chimps who are napping flint that are building you the future. So 
we can get out of this mess, but it requires absolute clarity about building a technological ladder out of hell before we get genocide. Right? What does that mean? All resources devoted to clean meat. Everything that we've got culturally, we need to throw at that. We're not going to get ordinary Americans to stop eating beef until yeah. they can eat something better than beef. Right? If the vegans get in the way and decide that clean meat isn't, isn't vegan, we should basically just, you know, I don't know, cover them in duct tape or something. Just get them to shut up. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we need everybody behind this thing. Yeah. Right? Because if we can get that done, right, huge impact on the regeneration of nature, huge impact on climate change because the cows stop producing methane. Yeah. Right, and you wind up not torturing enormous numbers of animals to death for no good reason. It's right? a good plus sign. It's a straight win. Yeah. Right, but everything needs to be concentrated on that because it's the third key. If we can get that, you get the possibility of averting global famine because prime rib costs a dollar a kilogram. Right, and suddenly there's just an enormous amount of agricultural land grow freed up for growing real food on. There. Right. Right. It's a you. Huge fix. Yeah. Right? What do humans look like if they're no longer scarce for food? Starvation is no longer an issue. Oh, well, we fixed that then, didn't we? Right? Yeah. Solar panel and agricultural waste goes in, prime rib comes out. Amazing. Right? Now, why do we have endless amounts of bickering and chimping and arguing and whining and all the rest of yeah. this stuff about other issues? Right. Right? It's all bullshit. It can all be safely ignored. Get the queen meat thing sorted out tread down every barrier on the way to that. I don't care what it costs, I don't care who is wrong, we basically just crush, like tank-like crushing forward until we get that thing mass adopted. Right? Mm -hmm. Same thing with the solar panels. The solar panels are doing so well because they're so cheap that it is just yeah. mowing down everything on the way towards a sustainable future. So, structure number one, right? The clean meat thing is the next key, we turn that with all possible force. The rest of the environmental causes pale in significance to clean meat. Just get that one done. I so appreciate you being able to distill this down to a few yeah. small actions that people Real can simple. take. Veganism, some straight direction. Even just cutting the amount of meat you intake weekly. I mean, yearly, that, that helps. Help. That helps a tiny bit. Yeah, but it's not worth doing. What really needs done is we need to abandon all of the causes and fight for clean meat. Right, because we're not going to get mass population change unless we get something which is not meat, but is better than meat. If we can offer people better than meat, they'll change. Mm -hmm. right? Turns out they're not vegan because they don't like eating it. Their ancestors right. were dairy right. farmers for 10,000 years, and if you're going to take people whose genes are 10,000 years of dairy farming, they're not really going to enjoy lentils. <laughs> right? My ancestors are evolved for veganism on one side of the family, and uh -huh. they were dairy farmers on the other side. And it turns out it doesn't work for me. I just can't, you know, my body is just like, I'm unhappy, feed me meat. Well, I mean, I could fight against myself. Right, right. Or somebody could give me something that's better than better me. Better than me, yeah. Right? Fighting yeah. human nature is not the answer. It's really not the answer. Right? Yeah. Engineering an environment in which people are happy, that is the answer. What do people want? They want meat. Fine. We figure out how to give them meat without cows. Boom, job done. Yeah. Right? It's not a moral issue. Right? Saving energy would have been great if we were smart enough to be energy-saving chimpanzees. Turns mm -hmm. out we are not wired to save energy, right? We are wired to find new sources of clean energy. Let's do that. Double down on what works. Yeah. Stop investing in what doesn't, right? Second big push. Inequality is absolutely the wrong framing for the global problem. 
if we decide that we're going to fight for equality, we're going to wind up with socialist genocide in the same way that you saw in Russia, China, and all the rest of them. <clears throat> what we could safely do, I think, is global minimum standard of living. Now, this does not mean the same thing as basic income. Global minimum standard of living is everybody ought to have, let's say, a 75-year life expectancy. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Pretty reasonable. Absolutely. If you're in a culture that doesn't have a 75-year life expectancy, you figure out what they're dying of, and you give them stuff until it stops. Now, that's a very crude way of thinking about it. But generally speaking, if you think of life expectancy rather than dollars, you get a much better picture of what's happening. Mm -hmm. right. So there's a place in India called Kerala. They've got a dollar a day average income, and they've got lifespan and birth rates equivalent to most of Europe. Amazing. Yeah. Right. How did yeah. they do it? Democratically elected matriarchal market communism with land reforms. <laughs> right. Kerala right. is exactly the place that the hippies have been trying to build. It's exactly the place that the green left has been trying to build. Okay. Because it was done by brown people, not white people, and because it was communism rather than something else. Mm -hmm. Everybody pretends it never happened. Kerala is the place where they fixed it and nobody will talk about it because nobody wants to think about it but they fixed it, they know how to do it mm -hmm. right? so we've proven that it's possible to do a 60 million person social block with those demographics 60 million people in Kerala at a dollar a day of average income with life expectancy and birth rates equivalent to most of Europe see I find hope in stories like this sure, but you can't get other people to do it you've never heard of Kerala no Right? No. Why won't people hold up Carol as the enormous model of the future? That's what we all want to be doing, because it was done by brown people. Right? If you'd figured that out and it was a bunch of people in, let's say, rural Switzerland, they'd be held up as a model for the entire world. Because it's Asian communism. We're not going to touch that. They don't look like us. Nobody they wants won't to. work here. And or... it's got the communism word associated yeah. with it. Right? Yeah. And nobody will touch it. Yeah. So, if we break away from the idea that we're going to try and get equality, we can stop fighting the rich, right? Yeah. The rich are super powerful, they're super dangerous, and if you fuck with them, they kill you. So what we could do is we could say, right, 75-year life expectancy, eight years, whatever it is, what does it need? Clean water, adequate diet, basic medical care, and maybe extraordinary interventions of the cheap kind. Like there are a whole bunch of things that you could do which are major medical, but they're really cheap, mm -hmm. and we want that stuff to be accessible. Absolutely. You ought to be able to get x-rays done, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So if you focus on cost-controlled basic medicine with occasional extraordinary interventions like appendicitis, right, and you add to that food security, right, land tenure, clean water supply, maybe, I don't know, in smokeless cooking, there are a couple of uh -huh. things, right? It's a really small list of critical things. Yeah. If you provide those everywhere, people stop dying of stupid reasons. They stop dying of poverty. Now, that is not the same thing as attempting to engineer equality for the whole world and make the rich and the poor the same. Yeah. You just stop people dying of poverty. And if you stop people dying of poverty, weirdly enough, their birth rates fall through the floor. Right. What's the correlation there? Oh, if your kids tend to die, you have more kids. If your kids tend to live, you stop having okay. more kids. Yeah. And that effect doesn't take a whole generation. If your big sister had five kids and four and a half, four of them survived, younger sister has three kids. Right? Yeah. You, you know, it takes women no time at all to figure out that, you know, like, wow, that's too many. Yeah. Right? But in areas of Africa where they've got very high infant mortality, 20% infant mortality is typical in the bad areas. Yeah. If you want two kids to reach adulthood, you need to start with four. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Right? 
Yeah. It's very, very, very rough statistically. I mean, I, I did the modeling for this on a spreadsheet one time. At 20% infant mortality, you need to have basically five kids to have a 90% probability that two will reach adulthood. Okay. It's super, super rough. Yeah. Right? And so if you have an economically optimal number of children, the families tend to be really large because 90% certainty means most of the time you overshoot and wind up with three rather than two. Mm -hmm. As a result, your population right. doubles in two generations. Mm -hmm. No way we can support that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But what you see everywhere else where we've reduced infant mortality to sane levels is the birth rates are dropping like stones. Mm -hmm. So we don't need to worry about human population. If you give people an escape from poverty, human population sorts itself out real quick. Yeah. Right. All of the Western developed nations have negative birth rates. Right, 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 right. So at that point, you stop people dying of poverty, we stop having overpopulation problems. This yeah. is not hard, right? Yeah. So, you know, think of this as a recipe, right? Sort out basic resource access. Clean meat is the next thing we need to do. I think after that, there'll be a couple other things, then we'll get to asteroid mining. <laughs> okay. Right? And figure out how to stop people dying of poverty and make that a priority. Mm -hmm. My suggestion is that we declare a global state of emergency and we stop wasting energy on other causes. Every time that you speak, I learn so much Thank you so much for sitting down with, for 40 minutes, having this conversation, and uh, I'm just very grateful for all you're doing. You're speaking to this, you're highlighting these issues, and you're also presenting solutions. Well, And I appreciate that. You're more than welcome. The solutions are there. The work is being done. Yeah. The last thing I want to say is don't neglect the space effort. Because when you confine a bunch of aggressive chimpanzees on an island with limited resources, it's not that long before they split into factions and try and kill each other to ensure that there are more resources. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, if we can get into space, it may well mean an infinite horizon where we never run out of new unclaimed resources. So anybody that doesn't like the existing society or anybody that's filled with anger and hatred and doesn't like their neighbours, they can just get on a ship and go and open up the next asteroid or open up the next moon or open up the next star system depending on the scale of your available technology. So if we're looking for a long-term solution to the problems of human nature, right? It's very clear that we started in one, two, three places and then spread across the entire world. We're out of room to spread. Yeah. And when two bunch of, bunch of chimps that don't know each other meet, right? if they've got plenty of resources, it's partying. And if there aren't enough resources, it's murder. Right. Right. So I think that we might want to think about the long-term fix for human nature is not to try and change human nature. We've got a billion years yeah. of this. Let's fix the environment by getting into tin cans and going into space. Because at that point, human nature is well suited to enormous expansion and vast empire. And if that's what we're like, let's go to a place where those games can be played sensibly rather than trying mm -hmm. to play them here, where it's all mass murder. Yeah. If we do that stuff in space, there's infinite room. We're not going to clash with each other much. Yeah, We can just go off and do our will. Why not? I don't know about you, but I'm sticking around here. Um, good luck in the can, and thank you so much for your time again. To learn more, dig deeper, or get inspired, I recommend reading Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman. The Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver. And Love and Power by Adam Kahane. A big thanks to my sponsor, Jay Lately, for providing the music for Onward. Jay Lately is a hip-hop artist who's been pursuing his dream since the age of 16 while juggling jobs that improve the lives of youth in Oakland. 
If you like good music and want to support independent artists, please go check out soundcloud.com forward slash just lately. Make sure to subscribe to Onward via iTunes or Anchor FM. Wouldn't want you missing out on another inspiring conversation with an awesome social innovator. Until next time, onward and upward.